The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we ask what 2016 will hold for over 4.5 million displaced people in what's arguably the worst global humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. The conflict in Syria continues unabated, despite Western military intervention. And now those who fled their homes to seek refuge elsewhere face further challenges, from harsh winter conditions to equally icy receptions in some European and Middle Eastern countries. So how effective has the humanitarian response been so far, and how might we make it better? Joining me to discuss this today is David Miliband, former British Foreign Secretary and currently President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. David, in the case of Syria, do you think that the response of the humanitarian sector and governments as a whole has been too disjointed? I think the short answer to that is yes, uh, there's been a collective failure. But I think that the slightly longer answer would say that the Syria crisis has seen extraordinary heroism by the humanitarian sector. I mean, there are 2,000 IRC staff working today inside Syria, delivering health, education, protection for women and kids. There's been extraordinary volunteer attempts to help in Europe. And in the neighboring states, which have borne the greatest share of the load, Lebanon, uh, Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, uh, there has been an extraordinary level of fellowship and support. But one can only say that alongside the heroism, it has been a patchwork response. It's been a response of too little, too late. It's been a short-term response when this is a long-term problem. And it's also been a response which has hoped that the war would end and planned on the basis that the war would end, even though it's increasingly evident that the war is getting more complex and more vicious. And so I think there's been an imbalance between the social side and the economic side, between the short-term and the long-term. And so I think that uh, the forthcoming conference on uh, the Syria response in London convened by uh, the British, the Germans, the Kuwaitis uh, and the UN has got a real responsibility to look hard and starkly and, and without any happy talk about the humanitarian conditions that are desperate for the people involved and also a source of enormous political destabilization for the region and for Europe. And so what would you be hoping would change as a result of that? We've seen very different responses throughout Europe. We've seen a very open offer on refugees from Angela Merkel in Germany, a more limited one from Britain, but particularly Eastern, Central Eastern Europe, uh, really not very happy to see this wave of, of migration, whatever the background. What hope is there really of pulling these responses together? Well, I would say two things to preface and answer that. The first is that you referred in your own introduction to 4.5 million displaced people. Now, of course, there are 4.5 million refugees who've left Syria, but there's another 7.5 million who are displaced inside Syria, and there are still 17 million left in Syria. And one of the striking things for me is that when I visited Lesvos, the Greek island where we're working and which has received more than half of the refugees arriving in Europe about half of them were coming direct from Syria. And so this, the, the nature of the war inside Syria, as well as the conditions in the neighbouring states, is important. The second thing that I think is vital is that no response that only deals with the symptoms will be able to staunch the flow or to deal with the humanitarian tragedy. The only conceivable effective response has to work across the arc of crisis, starting inside Syria, where there is a war without law, where the lack of civilian protection, the lack of accountability for war crimes has become a, a driver of people. Secondly, 
the neighboring states. I mean, Lebanon now, one in four people is a refugee. In Jordan, one in eight or nine people is a refugee. These are societies creaking under the burden of the flows of people. And then, yes, you're right, inside Europe, there needs to be coherence, there needs to be distribution of people, and there needs to be an effective system for screening and registration. You've also been a practical politician at a very high level, and you know that there are tensions in host countries, however desperate the situation uh, of refugees. Now, that's become very obvious in in Germany recently, the recent events in in Cologne on New Year's Eve uh, and attacks at the railway station, which kind of opened up this can of worms about how can we deal with a rate of absorption of, of people coming to us, whether from Syria or other parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa. Do you think that puts a question mark for many countries over their policy? Well, undoubtedly, it's the case that compassion on its own is not enough. If compassion is not allied to competence in the way in which uh, people are dealt with, then you will lose trust. Now, Germany is obviously coping with an extraordinary number of people, a million people registering for asylum claims in Germany. They need help. They can't do it on their own. Uh, That help has to start in the neighbouring states, and the Germans are working very closely with the Turks now. Germany also needs uh, some support on some very basic lessons, which come, I think, from the US. You made this point in your editorial, the Economist editorial last week, that the US model where You get a job, your kids get an education, you learn the language and you're put on the path to citizenship with all the legal elements that that involves. That's a pretty well-proven model. And it's one that needs to be applied in a very, very clear-headed way in Europe, I think, as well. Some people think the number is simply too great to be absorbed comfortably, not least for German society, which is not used to big waves of immigration. Not many years ago, it used to say, we are not a land of immigration. Very consciously drew that contrast with America. What do you think about that? I think that the plan for redistribution of people across Europe precisely recognises this point. I mean, Germany is 80 million people. A million people is a lot of people. I mean, Turkey, also a country of 80 million people, has taken 2 million Syrians, so admittedly next door. But I think that the basic case that Germany's made, which is that we shouldn't bear this burden alone, is right. And that's why I think that I think it's 160,000 people going to be redistributed under the EU plan. They need to live up to it, and not least to show the German public that they're not being expected to bear the whole burden on their own. Do you think that Britain's response in terms of numbers has been adequate? Would you be, if you were back in your old day job, lobbying for a different policy to a quite limited open door in Britain? In respect of the specific question that you asked about Britain in terms of its numbers, which is 20,000 over five years, I would say that is too small. Uh, The figure I always quote to people is that um, if Britain were to take 25,000 a year, that would be 40 per parliamentary constituency. And no one's going to persuade me that 40 refugees per parliamentary constituency of 65 or 70,000 is going to overrun Uh, the uh, country. Equally, I really think it's important to to say that while on the numbers game, Britain has played a limited role, the other side of the equation, which is overseas aid to make a difference inside Syria and in the neighbouring states, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration or some kind of old British patriotism that leads me to say Britain has played an exemplary role in its overseas aid approach and the kind of support that comes from the Department for International Development to meet humanitarian need in the neighbouring states inside Syria has has been of a very high order. 
The United States has a long and proud history of accepting refugees and integrating them pretty well in, into its society. That hasn't been uh, the response when it comes to the Syria crisis with uh, Barack Obama, Democrat president. Some people would have hoped perhaps for, for more on that. But he is working in a pre-election climate and there is quite a strong anti-immigration feeling. How do you assess where that will go? I think it's important to pick up you up without making a lawyer's point. You said an anti-immigration feeling. And I think one of the dangers in this area is that the immigration debate and the refugee debate become confused. Refugees are people with a well-founded fear of persecution. Immigrants are seeking a better economic life. And our own experience in Europe is when the two become confused, then both lose out. And I think that is happening in the US, where the immigration debate has become confused with the refugee debate. It's also the case that there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear uh, about the Middle East, and there's a lot of fear about people from uh, the Middle East, despite the fact that there are successful Syrian-American communities all across the country, and despite the fact that no Syrian refugee has ever been arrested on terrorism offences in the US. So you're right to point out the the, the challenge. Uh, the argument that I make uh, on behalf of the International Rescue Committee in the US is first that the US has just look at the Statue of Liberty, bring me your poor and huddled masses. This is where the country has staked its ground, that it will be a place that people are welcome if they're willing to play by the rules. Secondly, America has an extraordinary record of refugees becoming patriotic and productive citizens from Einstein, who founded the IRC, to Madeleine Albright, uh, to Sergey Brin. I mean, this is an extraordinary story. And finally, I think that the US has a successful and proven system. And it's striking to have Homeland Security Secretary saying, look, fears about the security of this are not well founded. What about military intervention? Britain joined in after a vote in in Parliament, a long delayed vote in Parliament, as it turned out. It split your old party and indeed the leader of your old party, the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, opposed it very strongly. Am I right in guessing which side you would have been on? I mean, I tell you what the reason for my hesitation in uh, speaking about military matters is that I've got 2,000 staff on the ground in Syria. And I, it behooves me to have the ability to put to one side my own personal views about what uh, is right or wrong and to think for the humanitarian organization I represent and that I lead, I've got to have in the forefront of my mind the safety of the people on the ground. And so what I would say is that we've seen the dangers in Syria that come from non-intervention. In the Iraq case, you can see the dangers of intervention. Perhaps you could also argue that about Libya. But Syria is a case where no one can say it's the excess of Western military adventurism that has caused the current implosion that exists in the in the country. And from a humanitarian point of view, the abuse of civilians that comes from barrel bombs that are dropped by Assad seemingly without any accountability or without any uh, halt is something that's a daily tyranny for the people that uh, we are trying to help. And the, the, the slide of Syria into the vortex, uh, which has happened over the last five years, is one that I think has to be understood as a, as a failure of collective action of a pretty profound kind. It is, kind. but isn't it a failure also to an extent of a generation of politicians around the Iraq war? Because the argument in Labour, and I don't mean people who never support any intervention, I mean quite reasonable and open-minded people have been saying to, to me and others, I cannot see a guaranteed way that this is going to make things better. And so I'm not going to take the risk. I gave my vote last time. You were foreign secretary during a lot of these uh, arguments and after. So 
can you understand that reluctance? And are we kind of stuck with an Iraq condition in our heads that we can't get out of? I, mean, I was actually the foreign secretary who brought British troops out of Iraq rather than uh, took them yes, in. Yes, but you, you supported their I know the in argument. Iraq. I yeah. know the argument that you are making, and you're undoubtedly right. And the people you're talking to who say, I can't guarantee that it will turn out well, are of course right. There are no guarantees. And both action and inaction are high risk. And I guess my point is that both have to be weighed very, very strongly indeed. Just a a last thought. You're clearly going to continue to do this job for some time because it doesn't look like uh, the immediate crisis. I don't think I've solved the problems, if that's what you're saying. Yes, I don't think there there is an obvious retire-by date. Uh, And you're clearly very committed to it. I was just talking to a friend of yours uh, from New York who said, you know, there is still a bit of David Miliband's heart that is in British politics. And if the moment arose, would go back and play a role back in British politics. Was he right? Uh, Well, I'm very, very happy to say that I'm totally focused on the job that I'm uh, doing and that I've made no plans for the next job that I'm doing. And while I I feel a strong sense of affinity and commitment to the UK, I'm also wholly dedicated to fulfilling the mandate I've been given by the Board of Directors of the IRC, which is to make sure that at a time of unprecedented humanitarian need, we gear up. And the fact that I'm running an organisation that helped 23 million people last year, that's now active in 30 countries, that works across the arc of crisis from war zones to fragile states to do refugee resettlement uh, as well, makes me think that what I said at my job interview, which is that these questions of humanitarian intervention are some of the most challenging issues in public policy today, makes me think I was right to to do that. And I'm pleased to be doing the job I'm doing. David Miliband, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy, in London. This is The Economist. The Economist.